Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick, and we have reached a milestone with this episode. This episode, the one you are listening to right now. This is the American Birding Podcast, episode number 100. 100! We are now eligible for one of those little pins that we sell at the ABA shop to put on our birding hat. The 100 one has a red-headed woodpecker on it. For our purposes, that woodpecker will now be clinging to a microphone or something. 100 episodes, can you believe it? Have any of you been here since the beginning? I have. But, you know, for a special 100th episode surprise, I have in front of me 27 prepaid envelopes and a whole bunch of American Birding Podcast stickers. I have these stickers that have our logo on it. The first 27 people to email me at podcast.aba.org with your contact information will get something in the mail from me. Of course, they are prepaid with the U.S. Postal Service. They have to be in the United States. I'm sorry. If you are Canadian, I do have to put a couple extra first-class stamps on it. I might be willing to do that for you. But I could definitely get it to you if, if you're in the United States. 27 prepaid envelopes. If you want to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts in return, you know, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, that would be great. I was going to kind of tie this thing to leaving a rating, but some of you may have already done that. So I won't. Just know that you know I appreciate you if you do. This is a gift to 27 of you until I run out of envelopes. On the show today... We're going to spill some tea on the biggest name in North American ornithology, none other than John James Audubon. If you like birder drama, stories of epic stringing, we're going to bring you some serious 19th century real house wrens of Delaware County type stuff. Ornithologist and historian Matthew Halley is here to talk about Audubon the bird of Washington, and the fraud that launched the most famous bird book in the world. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the second week of July 2020. Rhode Island strikes again, the smallest target in the ABA area, aside from maybe St. Pierre and Mechelon or or District of Columbia, has been a magnet for vagrant shorebirds in the last couple weeks. We talked about the Tarek Sandpiper the last time out, but in the wake of that bird, both a little stint and a red-necked stint have been seen, the former on the exact same beach as the Tarek before. And if that wasn't enough, look, let's be honest, it never is, a rough, the flashy, four-gendered shorebird with a big mane of feathers was also seen as well alongside the little stint. So that is four Eurasian shorebirds in the last two weeks in Rhode Island. I think only Alaska or maybe California could boast such a haul in a short amount of time, and it's notable that they didn't. So congratulations, little roadie. I have one first record to report this time around. In Oklahoma, a Limpkin photographed at Red Slough, Wildlife management area in McCurtain County is a state first. We've seen a lot of limpkins moving around, especially the southeast, in the last couple of years. Uh, They're breeding in Louisiana, so it was really only a matter of time before one turned up in, in Oklahoma. Notably, this bird was only seen three miles from Texas, a state where limpkin has yet to be recorded. Seems like it's only a matter of time now. 
That's all for this week. For a more complete look at all the rare birds seen across the U.S. and Canada, check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning at aba.org slash rba, or you can go to our Rare Bird Facebook page at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare, or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. John James Audubon is frequently referred to with reverence as the father of North American ornithology. He has birds named after him, the country's best-known bird organization. He's widely acknowledged as a skilled painter and the best of gentlemen naturalists of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. His public reputation feels nearly impeccable, but not so fast, says ornithologist and historian Matthew Halley in a recently published article in the Bulletin of the British Ornithologist Club. That article... Audubon's Bird of Washington, unraveling the fraud that launched the birds of America, blows the lid off the origins of perhaps North America's best-known bird book and ornithologist. Sorry, Sibley. Um, Welcome, Matthew. Thanks for talking with me today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks. Your story sort of begins in 1826 on the eve of Audubon's trip to England to raise money for for his book. So let's just start sort of at the beginning. Like, what has he been up to? Yeah up to this point, and, and where is sort of his head at? Sure. Well, the story actually, you know, that's when he arrives in Europe. You know, the sure. story, uh, it starts earlier, a few years earlier. Um, the period between 1824 and 1826, just prior to when he went to Europe, is kind of a dark period in Audubon's life in terms of primary sources and what's available. There's a lot of scandal in the biography of Audubon. Um, the journals of Audubon, he kept a journal during this period and it was burned by his granddaughter. She destroyed it because she didn't want the public to see what was inside of it. Uh, she did publish some bowdlerized excerpts from the journal that are impossible to verify now because she destroyed the originals. It's always been a kind of a, the black hole of Audubon. And you know, that's, really the critical period if we want to understand yeah. the birds of america where did the birds of america come from where did this grand idea come from um and how did how did this guy go from really poor to really famous and getting rich real really fast yeah because he was not the only ornithologist kind of working north america at this time and doing similar stuff right the number of american ornithologists was few um but yeah. there was a a pretty wide uh, tradition of citizen science. Think of citizen science as this modern phenomenon when really uh, in Philadelphia back during the colonial period and then into the new the new republic, the end of the 18th century into mm-hmm. until about 1830. This is where America's first science museum was founded. The Academy of Natural Sciences is founded 1812. This is the longest extant museum. But prior to that is a museum called the Philadelphia Museum, uh, Peel's Museum, Charles Wilson Peel and his family. So there was this long legacy of specimen-based ornithology in Philadelphia. And Audubon had been around Philadelphia. He had lived uh, out near Mill Grove, uh, uh, what is now Audubon, Pennsylvania. There's a property there called Mill Grove that was owned. Okay, you've been there. So so I grew up right across the river from Mill Grove. Oh, really? In Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. I, to be honest, I didn't know anything about Audubon until uh, until years later. I had already become an ornithologist and was... (laughs) <laughs> you know, there's something in the water in Chester County 
yeah. at Chester, Montgomery, Delaware counties around Philadelphia. There's a lot of ornithologists have come from this region. In 2010, I moved into a historic house in Philadelphia. I became the resident caretaker of the Wick House. It's in Germantown. The foundation of the house was laid in 1690. And this was the family homestead of the corresponding secretary of the Academy of Natural Sciences during the period when Audubon was publishing. Audubon in 1824, he came north and decided that he was going to try to you know, sell his paintings or find an engraver for his paintings, see whether he could make this ornithology thing work. Yeah. So the problem here is that this visit to Philadelphia is part of the dark period. Yeah. This is the beginning of the story of the birds of America, and we really don't have a lot of primary sources. And so what was what uh, started this whole thing is that in 2010, when I moved into the Wick house, I was looking through the the Wick papers. Uh, there was, you know, I think 200,000 papers in the family's documents when it was uh, turned into a trust. And uh, now it's a nonprofit organization that runs it. Um, but there were five unpublished letters in the collection of Wick. Three of them dated 1825. And these were Audubon papers. These letters are letters, Audubon or from Audubon? letters written by Audubon, okay. right? Handwritten by Audubon, addressed to Reuben Haynes, the master of Wick, and who was at the time the corresponding secretary of the academy. So Audubon came to Wick and he stayed at, he stayed there and the, the rest of the house was under renovation at the time. Uh, and so I'm pretty sure that when Audubon came, he probably was, was put up in the guest quarters, which is where my bedroom was. <laughs> so when I found these letters, it was a personal thing. Um, I was thinking, yeah. wow, this is the guy, the town Audubon is named after him. And uh -huh. like that guy who lived across the river from my hometown. And I couldn't help but feel cool by association. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And so I read the letters. It took me a long time. His handwriting was atrocious. <laughs> so what was so fascinating is that embedded in one of the letters was what I call the original American prospectus for the birds of America. And so he kind of discusses a little bit of his plan. You know, the, the plan that he proposed to the Academy and to New York it was, you know, similar to what we see in the Birds of America, some slight differences. But what is more important to this story is that when he presented this material to the Academy, he was nominated for membership. And Rubin was one of the people who nominated him. And the Academy rejected him. <laughs> and on the same day that they rejected him, they accepted the nominations of three other people who hadn't accomplished anything. So it became personal for Audubon. Yeah. So he felt, certainly felt rejected and wounded. Absolutely. Yeah. This is the starting point uh, for my story. And I spent 10 years tracking down primary sources. Uh, those five letters that I found, I published them uh, five years later. I published full transcripts annotated. And uh, so they're all available. If you search for the heart of Audubon, you'll find those online. There's a historian of science back in the 20th century named Thomas Kuhn, and he had this theory of scientific revolutions, right? And his main idea was that most scholars are spinning their wheels within a paradigm that may or may not be a truthful paradigm. 
and that over time an anomalies start to accumulate right and this is what started to happen in my audubon research anomalies started to accumulate the first anomaly he he tells reuben haynes that i began long before wilson <laughs> alexander wilson yeah the the other thing that is one, categorically yeah. untrue that's not even hard to to prove that that's not true right so it's clearly yeah. a lie and he's lying in the letter to the secretary of the place that just rejected him. So he's trying to justify his acceptance as a member of that academy by lying about how he started before Wilson. Yeah. And, yeah. and it turns out that as more anomalies accrued, there was a lot of cases where he's trying to backdate things. He's trying to mm -hmm. tell you that he was doing something long ago that, that of which there's no evidence. So starting to, we're starting to get a pattern here of Audubon sort of stretching the truth to kind of build himself up. The big part of this is what your paper is about. Mm -hmm. the, the birds of Washington, the big fraud having to do with the Washington sea eagle or the great sea eagle. Can you explain yep. what that eagle is and sort of why it was important sure. in the Audubon story? So 1826, Audubon arrives in England. Mm -hmm. He has left his family back in the United States. Uh, he's got two sons and, and a wife who's working in a plantation in Louisiana. And Audubon arrives in Liverpool and he has letters of introduction to some influential people there. Pretty soon, uh, these wealthy families arrange to have his paintings put on display at the Liverpool Royal Institution. And it's apparently a big hit. Four to 500 attendees. A month later, he goes to Edinburgh and he does the same thing. Mm -hmm. Or two months later. So this is the fall of 1826. The original pamphlet that was printed for the exhibition in Edinburgh is still extant. There's a copy mm -hmm. of it. And this thing's on a flimsy little piece of paper, right? Yeah. Um, published. How many copies did they make just for that one little art exhibit in Edinburgh that one weekend? But there's still a copy of it left in the papers at Cornell in the archives there. And the bird of Washington is the first species on the list. It's mm -hmm. number one. It's the first the first painting that he showed anybody in his exhibition. Uh, it's also he's got it arranged according to the Linnaean taxonomy, remember, mm -hmm. which right. and Linnaeus, of course, has the uh, acipitres at the top, the, the hawks and eagles. Yeah. Bird of Washington is right at the top. It's, it's his opening number. And it's an extraordinary claim that he makes right out of the gate. He says, here is the largest eagle in North America. Mm -hmm. No one has ever, I'm the first person to describe it. It's never been described. or And so Wilson, who had traveled extensively through its range, <laughs> right. overlooked the largest species of North American eagle. Yeah, completely missed it. <laughs> so this is the claim right off right right out of the gate. Um, and he's and he makes this claim in Edinburgh, just like a few miles down the road from Wilson's hometown. Yeah, he meets this guy, William Home Lizers, who is an engraver. Lizers uh, does the first 10 plates of Birds of America. And he met him in Edinburgh during that exhibition. So we're into the next year, 1827. Things start to go south with Audubon's project. Uh, Lizer's his team wasn't moving fast enough. There wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. There wasn't enough interest. Honestly, there was. They didn't have a long subscriber list. Audubon was trying to push the supply end uh, without demand. 
Yeah. And okay. so it wasn't going so well. And Lizers, pretty much he had it out with Lizers and the whole thing was about to fail. And Audubon went to London and he was feeling really lousy all the while he's writing in his journals. Now, the journals are not like we said before, they were edited by his granddaughter and some of them destroyed, but they also weren't a contemporaneous record of events as they actually occurred. Audubon was writing his journals as letters to his family. In every entry of the journal, he's saying, good night, sweetheart, you know. Which also means he has sort of an obligation, perhaps, to sugarcoat things a little bit. Indeed, because yeah. he committed massive fraud and, <laughs> and they didn't know about it. Yeah. And nor did historians for more than a century because they all just assumed that the journals were legit. Right. Not only the journals, but Audubon's all the stories he told in his books. I'm now at the point where I, I read some Audubon and I there's no way for me to assess its truth. And and the null hypothesis is that it's a lie. Mm -hmm. Did the ornithologists, I mean, you mentioned in your paper, uh, Bonaparte, Swainson, they were sort of involved in this as well. It's it's so funny how many names of our birds are, are involved in this whole story. Um, did they suspect it was a fraud? Did they believe that Wilson had overlooked this bird? Swainson was fully duped. Yeah. You know, when Audubon uh, started, he got his first 10 plates through Lizers and he was mm -hmm. introduced to Swainson. Swainson agreed for a, for a copy of, of birds of America at cost. He agreed to write a review. <laughs> and in 1828, right when everything was about to fall apart, Bonaparte passes through, he's on his way back to America and he stops through London and he runs into Audubon and he says, Hey, why don't you come with me this evening? I'm meeting at the Royal Society with mm -hmm. like, you know, the, the naturalists of London. Um, right. so this is a great opportunity for Audubon. This is where specimen based ornithology began. Yeah. This is, you know, the holy place of ornithology, <laughs> yeah. like the sacred temple of like where the science happened. It first started, yeah. he goes in there and he shows them his portfolio, which includes a bunch of made up species. <laughs> and they were so extraordinarily excited. Oh my gosh, I can't, we couldn't even dream of these species. Like you're a genius. <laughs> you're a total genius. Yeah. Um, and of course the cornerstone of this whole thing is the bird of Washington. Any person who discovers the largest Eagle, like this is the greatest discovery of all time. Right. <laughs> and it's only 1828 and everybody realizes that this Eagle is totally amazing. Swainson goes head over heels for the Eagle. He writes a bunch of stuff about, you know, compares it to George Washington. So here's the other thing. Not only does Audubon invent this species, the actual painting was plagiarized. From who? From Wilson? Uh, no. no, it was plagiarized from the, from the Cyclopedia, which was a serial work that had been started to be published in 1801 or 1802, first in London. Then it was a, an American edition was produced in Philadelphia and the plates from the original were re-engraved. Um, and Wilson actually was an assistant editor on the American edition in 1806. So he would have recognized yeah. the, he would have recognized the, image. yeah, this is yeah. The, the most incredible thing about this story is that if Wilson hadn't d died, Wilson would have been able to point out Audubon's fraud. Yeah. Audubon took advantage of that fact. 
the fact that all of the po- the people who knew about that original painting, the engravers, all of the people who had been involved in the publishing of those original images were dead or nearly so. And hmm. there wasn't anyone to call him out on the fraud. Did he know that? Like, you have to assume that he knew that. We have to assume that yeah. he did. Um, so Otherwise, why would at- he try and be so bold and plagiarizing a, a fairly well-known piece well, of work? Not only did... Not only did he apparently plagiarize it, he took two different images. One was an image that is labeled Golden Eagle. Mm-hmm. It's awkwardly perched on a, on a bare rock. It's this weird image. He was astute enough to realize that the foot was wrong of this eagle. So, but then he went through the encyclopedia and he, there was a page of bird feet, like uh-huh. dis- disembodied cartoon images of bird feet. And one of them was labeled Falco. You just took that one. And he slapped it on. <laughs> he put it on his bird of Washington. He rotated it, right? But it's, it's, it's anatomically incorrect. Yeah. This, is, this is how you catch him in plagiarism, is that he not only copies these two images and attaches them together, uh, and then adds detail and color to make it, uh, you know, to obscure the plagiarized mm-hmm. elements and make it seem realistic, um, which he did a fantastic job at. Um, he convinced everybody. Not quite everybody. We'll get to that. The end result here is this amalgamation that is anatomically incorrect. Uh, And specifically, on the feet of the bird of Washington, there's these kind of scales, the scutellates on the Mm -hmm. foot that go down the tarsus. Eventually, they keep going down onto the toes, unlike any (laughs) eagle. And uh, the bill of the bird of Washington has a tomial tooth, a little notch like falcons. Like a falcon, yeah. And the the brow, the eyebrow, uh, or the eyelid, and the forehead has this weird little concave depression, just like the image he plagiarized. And the image he plagiarized has 10 tail feathers. Audubon's image has 10 tail feathers even though the actual eagles have 12. Yeah. Um, so there's all of these anomalies, right? Uh, yeah. So he took this image, though, and when he had it displayed for the Royal Society, Bonaparte was there and all of these rich, influential scientists, and they urged him to publish it in their scientific journal, which was about to drop its inaugural issue. Mm-hmm. And Audubon submitted an article called Notes on the Bird of Washington, in which he fabricated a whole bunch of data. And he claimed that his painting was from a fresh-killed specimen. It was painted from a fresh-killed specimen. Not true. He gave, uh, you know, measurements. He literally painted measurements, false measurements, on his painting, which convinced everyone, oh, it must really have been from a specimen. And so in that same issue of the Magazine of Natural History, which is this scientific article that is published in 1828, in the very same issue, William Swainson published his review of the Birds of America. And in, oh. and in his review, he guilt-tripped the English nobility. And Swainson was like, if, you've, if you're wealthy and you've been waiting around for a genius, now's your moment. Here it is. Here it is. And that's how he got the money to finish the book. And, and that's how he got the subscriber list to grow, to make the money necessary yeah. to make the Birds of America happen. Yeah. You talked about the specimen. There needed to be a specimen for this book. And actually, there's a story involving that, a story that involved uh, Richard Harlan of the, of the hawk um, that I thought was 
actually really funny and relates to the you know the myth of the Washington Eagle. Can you can you kind of tell that story with Richard Harlan? So after he's published the Bird of Washington, the plate comes out 1827. His article in the magazine of Natural History comes out 1828. It starts to get picked up by popular press. This is a really exciting discovery, right? Yeah. 1830 is the first issue of Audubon's ornithological biography. And this is the the book of text that accompanies the images from the birds of mm-hmm. America. And it was published in five volumes. So his first his first volume of ornithological biography includes the bird of Washington. And it's pretty much a, a uh, word-for-word copy of the article that he had previously published in the magazine of natural history. Mm-hmm. But there's one little extra detail in his uh, account in ornithological biography is that he mentions this specimen. Mm-hmm. So this is how it happened. Early in 1830, Audubon was passing through Philadelphia, apparently had struck up a little acquaintance with Richard Harlan back in 1824 because Harlan was a member of the Academy. Mm-hmm. Har- Har- By the way, Harlan also, you know, had has mixed reviews about his moral character. <laughs> yeah. Um, just like Audubon. And so Audubon's passing through. He meets up with Harlan. Harlan is a zoologist, but most of his papers are almost all written about mammals. I think he's got papers about fish. He doesn't get into ornithology much. Mm-hmm. So first they go to this garden. It's called McCarran's Garden. And they, they see an eagle that's in a cage, a bald eagle, and it's in its juvenile plumage. Mm-hmm. So it's all brown. Which is what the bird of Washington is illustrated as, we should Indeed. point out. It kind of looks like a uh, amalgamation of golden eagle and juvenile bald eagle thing. Yeah, and it's all brown in the, in the plumage. Yeah. So they, they, they see an all brown eagle, right? And Harlan gets excited and said, Audubon, this is, this is a bird of Washington. Like, <laughs> and Audubon knows that the bird of Washington is BS. And, so, and he knows it. And so he goes, no, no, this is a, this is an immature bald eagle. Like, trust me, it's going to molt into the adult plumage. It's going to have a white head and a white tail. And, and Harlan's like, no, it's too big. Look how big it is. Like, no, this is a real bird of Washington, right? This is the, it's the most absurd story, right? <laughs> yeah. And so they have like a friendly wager over it. And Audubon takes the guy's money, right? Yeah. Like figuratively there, I think it was a pretend wager, but it was like, he 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 goes for it. He uh is like, no, you know, it's a bald eagle. Care to put something on it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Later that day or the next day, like during this same visit to Philadelphia, they go to this taxidermy shop, uh, this guy, Joseph Brano. And Brano's museum, they call it, which is, is just his taxidermy shop, and he's got a bunch of birds mounted. Yeah. And now in there they found a Another eagle, and this one's mounted, right? It's not. It's, <laughs> it's not, not going to be molt. <laughs> no, it's not going to be molting. And so Audubon turns to Harlan and is like, "This is the real bird of Washington," <laughs> and he convinces Harlan totally, oh, like totally dupes Harlan. Harlan is like, "This is amazing!" Like you know, Harlan it, Audubon is already rot. This he's this rising star. Yeah, all of the naturalists know it. He is on a a uh, very steep trajectory towards fame. Yeah. And it happened all re- really rapidly. So as soon as Audubon leaves, he goes back, leaves Philadelphia. He's back on a boat to London. Right away, he turns around and writes a letter to Bonaparte. Uh, Bonaparte is, uh, I think, at the time in Italy. And he writes to Bonaparte and is like, 
you know, I saw in Philadelphia a fine specimen of my bird of Washington. You know, and now Bonaparte, for a little context, Bonaparte had worked in Philadelphia from 1824 to 27, but Bonaparte had a real bad falling out with the academy. He left on really bad terms. He wrote in letters like the the academy is damned. Uh, my feelings are those of a stranger. Bonaparte was not going to be going back to Philadelphia. Right. He, he wasn't communicating with George Ord and the other ornithologists in Philadelphia anymore. Audubon could rely on the fact that Bonaparte would never go to Philadelphia and see that specimen for himself. Right. So Audubon spread the rumor and he wrote in his book. In ornithological biography, he quotes Harlan's letter. Now, the original of Harlan's letter is at Yale. Um, so the primary sources for these letters exist in multiple archives. So this is one way that that, that rumor about the specimen in Philadelphia lasted until the 1870s at least, continued to be perpetuated and perpetuated, confusing everyone. Um, but in fact, it was proven to be a fraud by the ornithologists in Philadelphia, Titian Peel and George Ord. Whatever happened to that specimen? Did it leave that, leave Banos Museum? Or is it, did it just kind of disappear into, I don't know, wherever old specimens go? The fireplace, I guess. You yeah. Typically. <laughs> well, uh, later that summer, Audubon got a letter from Harlan. And Harlan said, hey, do you remember that eagle from Branos Museum? Mm -hmm. Like, I went back to the shop and made a deal for it. And I've deposited it in the Academy, <laughs> right? Yeah. I've deposited it in the Academy Museum. Like he went, I don't think, I don't think Audubon knew that Harlan was going to do that. I think yeah. that was a curveball to Audubon. And Harlan turned around, went and bought the, bought the specimen, deposited it in the museum where, where Ord and Titian Peel could go and look at it. Right. Oh, the last they, thing Audubon wants. And Peel was the first one to look at it. And he said, this is a bald eagle. What are you kidding me? <laughs> and he went to Ord and said to Ord, like, look, this is a bald eagle. Like this guy Audubon is pulling one over on us. Huh. Ord had a colleague in London, uh, Charles Waterton, and he had a nice back and forth letter series with Waterton in which he was, you know, spilling his guts about all of the scandal and about especially about Audubon. And he wrote this scathing letter about the bird of Washington and how he measured the specimen and essentially proves point by point how yeah. his painting is designed to fool people who don't have access to specimens. Yeah. Huh. By the way, these letters never saw the light of day. I was just going to say, like, so Audubon is a stringer. How did his reputation remain intact? How did these these pretty big names in ornithology at the time, how were they not able to make any sort of headway in exposing him. Audubon went public. Huh. He went he went to the general public. Yeah. Right. He started the bird of Washington caught fire so fast. It was a symbol of American independence. The name Washington was attached right. to it. Yeah, and we're here we are 50 years out from the revolution, so that's Audubon chose is. that name for a reason. Yeah. That was an established symbol of American patriotism that was guaranteed to make his eagle fly. Yeah. Huh. It was as successful in America as it was in Europe. It duped all the European naturalists until the, about a year or two later, and they started to, oh, no, we were, we were fooled. You know, there was some of that, but those were whispers in the corner, right. and everyone was too afraid to speak out. 
against Audubon. I I understand in history, we often think, you know, you often hear this line, we shouldn't judge 19th century men by 21st century standards, right? We've heard this a million times. This was against the standards of his own day. Give me a break. (laughs) This was illegal. Financial fraud was illegal. Even in, in England where he pulled it off and the victim of his fraud was literally the king of England himself. Yeah. The, it got pushed. These stories get started to get into periodicals and magazines that were printed low cost, you know, a gazillion copies throughout New York and Boston. And many of them said, oh, there's a specimen in the academy. Right. But no one questioned it. Yeah. And no one questioned it. It spread and it spread like wildfire. And Audubon, there was even a in the 1850s after Audubon's death, there was a song written about the bird of Washington published in Boston in which the lyrics of the song, they say the, the, the legions of tyranny flee and they call me the bird of the free. <laughs> like these over the top yeah. um, this, because it was no longer a bird. It was a symbol. Yeah. And once you have a symbol of American independence, uh, this is something that everyone's proud of. It spreads in the communities of people who have no, in, no knowledge of technical ornithology. And at the time, the number of technical ornithologists was you could, you could, you know, maybe a dozen. Yeah. Audubon was sort of known for, you know, mystery birds like, uh, you know, carbonated warbler and Cuvier's kinglet. There's a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. Um, do you suspect something similar is going on with these birds? Absolutely. It's yeah, not. Made them up. <laughs> I don't think it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that a bunch of the, the supposedly invented birds are named after naturalists in Europe, right? Yeah. He's buttering them up for their money. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And he's yeah. making up and he's making up species to convince them to sign on. Yeah. The more people sign on, then he's got their reputation that is that is wrapping into his own. Right. And, he's, so and he's he's popular by association. Uh, anytime he can get one of these famous naturalists to say something nice about his book. And one way to do that is to name a species after them. Yeah. Knowing all of this, what do you think Audubon's legacy should be? I think that Audubon, first, let me say that Audubon is one of the most brilliant artists that I've ever encountered. Yeah, that part is unimpeachable. Yeah, he is. His art is exceptional. And by the same token, his con artistry was exceptional. (laughs) Beautiful grift. (laughs) He was perhaps the greatest con artist of scientific history. I haven't come across anything that is as good. Once you read the paper, toward the end of the paper, suddenly we get into a section called separating man from myth mm-hmm. in which I go through the litany of all the anomalies. And so not all of them. You know, I had to cut it short at some point because there's so many <laughs> freaking anomalies. Lie after lie after lie after lie. And, you know, we live in a society right now where we're kind of confronted with that personality all the time. Lie, 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 lie. You're lying to cover up the lie you said before. And and this, you're lying about where you're born and where you come from and what it is you're doing and what it is that you're selling. Mm-hmm. And there's no solid ground to anchor yourself to when it comes to Audubon. And I think personally, as a as an ornithologist who cares about accumulating reliable knowledge, which I think is the the objective of scientific ornithology, it's important to note that that objective 
standard, the specimen evidence standard that ornithologists act with today, it was actually developed by Audubon's predecessors. Mm -hmm. Wilson, Thomas Say, when Say came back from the long expedition, he deposited his specimens at the Philadelphia Museum. You know, this is before Audubon. So it's, it's, unfair to say, oh, well, uh, you know, everything was kind of loosey-goosey back then. Actually, there were strong specimen-based standards. The same exact standard that modern ornithologists use was already established before yeah. Audubon pulled off the fraud. I think that in terms of Audubon's legacy, I do not believe that all of the accolades that Audubon has been given are deserved. Mm-hmm. His name is attached, obviously, to National Audubon Society and, you know, hundreds of regional and local Audubon societies and groups. The truth is, is that Audubon's legacy is complicated, but I'm not willing to brush it aside. For a century, uh, scholars have come along and given Audubon the benefit of the doubt Mm -hmm. again and again and again and again, even though behind them a mountain of doubt has accumulated. They keep they keep on doing it over and over because it sells. Yeah. And birding has become one of the most popular hobbies in America. Anything with the name Audubon on it is going to sell. There have been more biographies of Audubon in the last 20 years than the 50 years prior to that. There's an appetite for it right now. Um, and sadly, there's an appetite for the myth. I think we just need to come out, put it out on the table. Sunlight is the best disinfectant, as they say. Yep. Matthew Halley, thank you so much. You can read his article in the Bulletin of the British Ornithologist Club. The link will be in the show notes. Audubon's Birds of Washington Unraveling the Fraud that Launched the Birds of America. Pretty fascinating stuff. If, uh, at the very least, they should turn it into like an HBO drama. <laughs> anyway. Personally, I'm kind of hoping that Daniel Day-Lewis comes out of retirement. That's right. You would be perfect. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much. Uh, this was great. Absolutely. Thank you, Nate. American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and if you enjoy this podcast or any of the free resources the ABA provides, please consider joining. You get a magazine, you can get discounts to our partners like Princeton University Press or Cornell Labs, Birds of the World. You get the knowledge that you're helping to build a better birding community here and around the world. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. I want to make a special shout out to Austin Hahn of Washington, D.C., Kat Consler of Fairfax, Vermont, and Jack and Patricia Carr-Reese of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so much for that. Welcome or welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who's very much looking forward to that inevitable HBO miniseries about Audubon and the Birds of America fraud, undoubtedly to be called Loon Detective. Loon Detective. Technical production is by John Lowry, who wants to see a reality TV show about the drama surrounding Central Park birders and the famous and infamous Mandarin Duck that was there in Central Park a couple years ago. You can call it Ducks in the City. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley. They got ideas. This show, it's got gender bending. It's got strong female leads. It's got dramatic ocean journeys. It's got shorebirds. The title, The Young Fallow Rope. God, it's terrible. I'm sorry. 
You can find us online at aviated.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. I'm imagining a buddy cop type thing featuring Charles Ben Dyer and John C. McCown. They fought on opposite sides of the U.S. Civil War. They're traveling all around the West. They don't really get along, but they find common ground shooting random birds in the hopes that they'll be new and they can name them after themselves. We'll call it Dead Bird. Obviously, Timothy Oliphant can play either one. The man has range. Questions, comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.